This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Doro. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 3rd. Due to the pandemic, this year, the conference will be held virtually, and all are welcome to join. You'll be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Lisa Van Susteren is a psychiatrist in private practice in Washington, D.C., and has served as an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University. She's written a wonderful new book called Emotional Inflammation, Discover Your Triggers and Reclaim Your Equilibrium During Anxious Times. Trisha and I are excited to welcome Dr. Lisa Van Susteren to HealthGeek. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. We're really excited to talk about your new book called Emotional Inflammation, which we think is so interesting, the timing of it. We know it wasn't on purpose to have it come out after our world is completely turned over and changed into a new world, but it's pretty interesting, the timing. And so can you tell us why you decided to write the book and what is emotional inflammation? These are issues that I've been talking about for years. And of course, in the back of my mind, I was about to write a book tomorrow or the next day or soon. As with many projects, it never happened until I met up with Stacy Colino, my co-author, who had interviewed me for an article. And Stacy proposed that we write a book. And at first I had to sniff her out a little bit because sort of like, as I said to her, well, it's sort of like asking to get married before we've ever really <laughs> dated. She had written several books with other people. So she was an expert and could, I guess, quickly assess whether or not it was going to be a relationship that worked. So we met a couple of times for coffee. And sure enough, we seemed not only compatible, but it was an extraordinarily joyful experience working together. We only hated each other about 10% of the time, <laughs> which, which I understand is not a bad number. The second question is, what is emotional inflammation? It's sort of like physical inflammation in that, you know, when something is red and hot and hurts, it's very preoccupying. It impedes your emotion. You can't really do what you want to do. You feel upset and on edge experiencing the pain. And that's kind of the corollary emotionally that people feel on edge. There's an added feeling of dread and foreboding. It impedes people from living lives as fully as they might otherwise. And I wanted to address this because I see it so often in my office, and it was an attempt to reach people and talk about the many ways that we can address this and restore our health. So emotional inflammation, if it gets out of control, is that when we hear a diagnosis of schizophrenia or different things? Can it manifest into that? Okay, so the brain is the last frontier, as they say. What we don't know far exceeds what we do know. 
to cite specifically schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or some other major psychological disorder that is diagnosable and has been classified with specific symptoms, etc. That is separate from what we would call emotional inflammation, which is a more general term. And in this book, at least this context, it really refers to what has been called by others the, quote, walking wounded, walking around just kind of feeling bad. Now, clearly, even if you do have major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, if in addition you have an emotionally inflamed situation, it's going to make it worse. But this was not directed at entities that are diagnosable. This is more an experience that we're having that is contextual, but has an interplay with our own temperament, but it's the context in which our temperament is playing out. So it's something we are all experiencing because of a condition of our time? Yes, it's the unease that we feel that something is really dreadfully, or if not dreadfully, but something's wrong. The social issues that concern many of us, certainly political polarization, gun violence, Me Too issues, human rights violations, And of course, I've listed there because this has been most of my life's work in the last 15 years, in addition to being in practice in D.C. and private practice, is climate disruption and injury to the natural world, our only home. It is a cautionary tale addressing what is hurting us and how restoring our relationship, harmonious relationship with the natural world, which is, after all, where we evolved to live, is the only way that I think that we're going to bring some balance to our lives that can restore emotional equanimity. The role of nature then in becoming healthy, how do you see that? How does nature support me? Oh, that's my favorite question. (laughs) Um, So, okay, the two of you just finished telling me and you're just doing two things that, three things really, well, four things that I can already think of that you are doing that it responds to nature. First of all, you're working together. We are uh, social animals. And we crave contact with each other. So that's one of the things that's written about in the book is the need to be together. But most predominantly, when you first mentioned that you've been out for a bike ride, all I could think of was, gosh, you're out there seeing green, right? Water. Uh, Did you see water too? Yeah, we went along the canal. (laughs) Okay, that's the number one force in nature that calms us down. Wallace Nichols has written a book called Blue Mind. It's chocked full of friendly research about how water, more than anything, has a tranquilizing effect, a healing effect on us. And we can talk about many of the reasons why, but we all know that experience of sitting beside the water and feeling tranquilized as the waves come in, as we look out over the horizon. In the book, in Emotional Inflammation, and in Wallace Nichols' book, of course, he talks about many aspects of it, but we now know, and I've discussed this, or Stacy and I have, that reward receptors in our brain are actually activated when we see those patterns, the waves, for example. When we see a broad horizon that's peaceful, that isn't interrupted by lots of jarring and unnatural shapes. And what happens is that activating the reward centers, it bumps it up to activating our opioid receptors, which are the body's natural painkillers. That's where we get that sort of mesmerized feeling of being almost in an alternate universe. I'm sure many of us have that feeling where someone will kind of say something to us or come up behind us when we look at the water and we'll kind of go, huh? And we realize that we were in a different space, and we are. 
so water, you hit it with the water. Green, you hit it with the green. Fractals, which is a concept that's written about in the book, it shows how the shapes, natural shapes, tell us, and this is fundamentally evolutionary, that we are in a safe space and that this is probably a healthy, biodiverse space where we are likely to survive. So it fits in with some of our most basic natural tendencies. So uh, you saw green, you saw water, then you got sunlight. What the sunlight does for us is just, I mean, so many things. We all know about vitamin D, but what a lot of people don't know is that sunlight is also effective in storing up serotonin, which is uh, antidepressant. It's a chemical that we some of us take from a bottle, but it's better to get it from the sun. And it also helps us to store up melatonin. And melatonin is the sleep activating chemical that light is registered in photoreceptors in our eyes. But the sunlight stirs up through those photoreceptors a good slug of melatonin so that at night when it goes dark, we've got enough melatonin to put ourselves to sleep. So you've got the sun, you've got the companionship, you've got the water, you've got the green, you've got the fractals, and you got the great exercise. I mean, you know, what is that? 10 on a 10 point scale. <laughs> we had a good start to the day, Tricia. <laughs> so what you're saying is we are of nature. We are part of nature. And this idea that we've been separated causes our bodies to stress out. The cortisol starts coming. And what you're saying is when we're back into nature, we can breathe. You really did read the book. <laughs> That's a, yes, you were right. Cortisol is the stress hormone. Nicely said, we are of nature. We evolved over millions, billions really, from single cell organisms of years to be attuned to nature. So if we deviate too far, and I like technology as much as everybody else, but we're really treating nature like it's some kind of an X, and nature has been the balance. That's our home. If we want to heal, if we want to feel balanced, we will have to learn to re-engage with all the bounty that nature has to give to us. I think we're seeing that in this particular day where people are saying, I got to get out in nature. I really want to get out in nature. We know some of these things instinctively. And a friend of mine, very wonderful guy in Australia, his name is Glenn Albrecht, who coined the term solastalgia, which is a kind of pain and suffering that we feel when treasured places that used to give us a feeling of home are being lost through either a human-caused destruction or from storms and floods and fires. He's coined a new term, which is the symbiocene era, symbiosis meaning working together. He believes that we're about to be in an era where we recognize how important it is to be together, not only with each other, but with all species. Obviously, crossing our fingers that he's right, because I think this is the special sauce. So this emphasis on being together, obviously, we're talking in this time of the virus, COVID. What are your thoughts about this? Well, a lot. Uh, <laughs> let's see where to start. Uh, let me start at the top. COVID is going to be time limited. We'll find a treatment, I hope, a vaccine, or we'll get herd immunity. The big issue that is bearing down on us is the climate disruption, because 
there's nothing that will stop things on a dime with climate. That unspools outside of our hands once we reach various tipping points. But it has a lot of common features with COVID in that a lot of it takes place where we don't see that the problems are brewing and incubating. And by the time they explode, they're sort of out of control. I look at COVID right now and I'm thinking to myself, what are the lessons that we can learn here to better understand how we need to respect nature and how we need to understand how much we crave the contact with nature and with each other. It's not just a psychological state. We know, for example, that those hugs that we wish that we could have, when we hug each other and the pressure that we feel hugging each other triggers the release of a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding trust hormone. It's what moms get a big dose of when they give birth. We even get it peering into the eyes of pets, and we surely get it with a big hug from someone we love. We have seen now, and this is why I say the lessons that I hope we'll be learning are lessons that we need to sustain. I don't want to be shallow in recognizing that if we're sitting here talking, it's because we're safe. And that's a privileged place to be. I think to myself of these hard-earned lessons and whether or not they will be sustained is that maybe we can think to ourselves that we will vow or commit to doing and learning from these lessons and honoring all of the people the first responders who have worked fearlessly and sometimes have paid with their lives, the people who have suffered, the people who have died, and the people who are faced with such huge economic challenges and losses. And that we think going forward, what are all the lessons that we are learning, including being more conservative? Boy, I have found, and I'm vowed, I'm never using plastic in that kitchen of mine again. You can use newspapers for a lot of things I used to use paper towels for. There's a feeling of being conservative now and the true sense of conservation. And to recognize that that really is, I think, where we find common ground. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and again, this idea that we can live, you know, I don't want to say a minimalist kind of living, but we really were living with things we didn't really need. And if we choose to learn these lessons, practice them during this time, maybe we can take it out. Nicely said. Can we pivot a little bit and talk about, in your book, you help people who have this emotional inflammation or help all of us with a seven-part restore program. Can you tell us what that is? Each chapter begins with the letter of the restore plan. For example, the first one is to review your emotions. So often, I mean, true even of me, and I've been in this space for many, many years, to better understand the emotion we are having. Sometimes, you know, you find yourself getting angry about something, but maybe you're really afraid deep down inside. And if you act out angrily, people reject you or they amplify what's happening. They turn the temperature up further. But if you say to a person, you know, I'm really afraid, it has a much more mellowing effect. And what we want to do typically in order to get along is to turn the temperature down on our interactions so that we can hear each other. Because once you start getting that temperature up too high, nobody listens to the other person. You're either ready to take a swing at them or you're planning what you're going to say next. And you don't hear anything. That is to review your emotions. E is to evaluate triggers. I was thinking the other day, I'll just give you an example. I had been in a you know, pretty good mood despite the issues. 
it was a Thursday and it was almost four o'clock and I was walking in from the outside where it was sunny and green. And all of a sudden this wave came over me, like it was just so painful and dark. And I thought, what the heck just happened? And I realized that it was just two weeks before, maybe it was three weeks, I didn't know. At that very moment, Bobby Kennedy's grandchild drowned with her little boy in the Chesapeake Bay. You know, for me, it just had such a powerful feeling of, you know, what in the world? She's just going out to get a ball for her kid. Why did the fates do this? And if I hadn't really been aware that we all have triggers, I never would have thought to myself what happened. And I might have groused about something else in the house and been short-tempered or impatient or God only knows what. But I realized that it was that sense of tragedy and of fate I don't know that I believe in fate being against anybody, but boy, it sure felt like just going out to get a ball. Why do you have to drown two people? So that was my personal issue. But that's what I mean about evaluating your triggers. Stuff happens that might remind you of a time you were bullied in the past or made fun of, and you don't understand why you got in such a lather. But if you look through your triggers, sometimes you can understand. And then just briefly, I won't go through each chapter, but each chapter talks about the ways in which we can steady ourselves or we can bring our bodies back into line with how they were designed to function. Steadying ourselves is one of my favorites, is with responding to light. And I'm not saying how everybody's supposed to be sleeping here, but we used to sleep very, very differently. We used to sleep in segments. We used to, along with the animal kingdom and plants, the sun went down. Well, so did we. There were no artificial lights. And that's how the photoreceptors, I'll bring them up again, in our eyes have been designed to tell us, okay, release melatonin, everybody go to sleep, it's dark out here. Mm -hmm. We would wake up four or five hours later, we'd be up a couple, it was called the first sleep up a couple hours. Maybe we pondered the moon and the stars, and maybe that's where we got some of the awe that I think is missing in our lives today. Maybe we asked ourselves, what else is out there? Maybe we got a moon deficit disorder, who knows? And then we would go back to sleep, having had that slightly meditative time. Of course, now we're all talking about mindfulness and meditation. Maybe that was our built-in mindfulness meditation time. Fall back to sleep and then get up with the surge of good cortisol that would be released when those photoreceptors, even though our eyes were closed, we could get that sense that it was bright out and all of a sudden the whole world would spring to life. And a fascinating aside is that just a couple of years ago, there was a Nobel Prize, either for biology or physiology, something that showed that every single cell in our body has a clock. There's a central clock in our pineal gland in the center of our brain, and that is the conductor. And when it sends out messages, either hormonal or neurologically, it reaches every cell in our body and it says, get up, good morning, time to get to work, and all of the cells in our body start working together. So we are violating And we're all doing it. And I'm certainly pledging and promising and cajoling and bartering with myself and bargaining to be better about going to sleep more in tune with nature's rhythms. But one of the reasons is the microbiome in our gut is also responsive to all of the forces within nature. And we now know microbiome in our gut, which is made up of viruses and bacteria and parasites, mostly good, some bad, but they're held in check by the good ones, are like little factories. And when they are exposed to the natural rhythms of nature and light, etc., 
they secrete the serotonin, the melatonin. In fact, most of the serotonin comes from our gut. And it's all in response to the exposure and expression of natural forces. So what we eat is important, the pesticides that we don't ingest, the medications that we do or don't take, all of these things are important forces. And then there's some other tricks along the way that we kind of mentioned when we were talking about going outside, you and your bike ride. But one that I didn't talk about that I love is the whole field of psychoacoustics. It's all about what we hear, how what we hear has an effect on our moods and unnatural sounds versus natural sounds. This program, this seven-part program, is this to sort of lessen the taking of medication? Oh, it absolutely can. Yes. I'm a Western-trained physician, and as I've said to my patients and friends and family, I am very happy to be able to reach for a prescription pad in acute situations. But I also know and had seen increasingly, and this is why I wanted to write the book, that people were coming in with lives that were out of sync with how we were designed to be. So they would get up in the morning, race off on a commute that was long and potentially tiresome, and sit by themselves in a cubicle looking at a small screen and not interacting with other people and going home and living alone because we have all these gadgets that can allow us to, not going outside, being in a noisy place. And of course, I'm describing some of the worst offenses. Then they would come to me and they say, geez, you know, I have ADD. I can't concentrate. You know, they were staring at a screen all day long. Of course, they can't concentrate. They feel empty and alienated. And they'd say, you know, give me some ADD medicine. And they'd say, oh, also, I need something to go to sleep because of my ADD medicine. It kind of stimulates me. I can't sleep. Plus, they're looking at their devices, and the blue light in devices is highly activating. And so they're doing games and watching movies and God knows what on their devices before they go to sleep. So then they can't sleep. They want somebody to sleep. And then there's a kind of a hangover effect in the morning, and they can't really wake up that well, and they feel a little depressed. Could I give them something for that too? So you get the picture. Yeah. You know, as you were talking too, it just occurred to me, and Dora and I have talked about this too a lot, that it takes energy to sleep. And if we're depleting and we're not restoring during the daytime, right, it's almost impossible to sleep. Well, that's why that sunlight is so important. And especially early morning sunlight, the sunlight you get at four in the afternoon is not the same as the sunlight you get in that morning, those first rays of dawn. Those are the ones that get the melatonin stored up for the night to trigger sleep, the serotonin that calms us down. So it's critical. I saw a graph. It was fascinating. A fellow had done a graph and he showed it that we have at most an hour of sunlight running back and forth to the car or maybe going to get your lunch at noon. And he showed a graph that was so impressive of the amount of sunlight we used to get just so very recently. And it would be hours and hours and hours. We're breaking the rules. It's sort of like teenagers whose parents are out of town. You know, we're breaking the rules and expecting that no one's going to see what happens if you had a party at the house while they were gone. We're uh, breaking the rules and expecting a different outcome. Can we go back to talking about triggers? Because that's something that Trisha and I talk about all the time. <laughs> because both of us get triggered. Well, I should speak for myself. I get triggered. And I'm wondering, how can we become more rational thinkers? How do we do that? Well, of course, my tendency would be to say immediately, well, what's the trigger? 
but that might not be a place you want to go here. So I will speak generally. So what happens is when all of a sudden you feel inflamed or you want to withdraw or you feel frantically activated or just deeply anxious or some other emotion, doesn't matter. What's really important is take those emotions seriously. Do not cover them up. And I've said this to patients all the time, boy, this is paydirt. So rewind. Remember what I'd said earlier about saying to yourself, what just happened? What is this reminding me of? What images come to mind? What wisps of memory come to mind that can tell me how this particularly affects me? And again, it might be that you remember having something painful that was said to you, that you were treated poorly, or it was something that you were humiliated by. Whatever it is, it's something that had a searing emotional impact on you. And in our brains, there's this, the limbic system, that place remembers everything. Whether we're conscious of it or not is another story. We can be deeply unconscious of stuff that we remember. Do not suppress that, but put on your detective hat and go looking. What just happened? What comes to my mind that reminds me of what just happened? And then say to yourself, ah, as you stumble around kind of in the dark looking for what it was, piece it together. What were the themes? Was it somebody making fun of you, bullying you, intimidating you? Was it something you were ashamed of? Don't wonder whether or not it was rational or not. That's irrelevant because your limbic is your emotional memory system and storage system, and it doesn't care whether it's rational or not. Now hold this thought. Now, once you've uncovered what's going on, now you can go to a more sophisticated part of the brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex. That's a fancy way for saying the seat really of our judgment, our rational thinking. It's kind of the situation room. And let all this information into the situation room. And the situation room is very accustomed to looking at all of this stuff coming in from your brain and saying, well, okay you know, that was then, this is now, can you let it go? And if you can't, can you stay away from it? The situation room figures out what to do about it. So you've got both the open arms to be the detective that understands all these clues. And then you've got that really embracing part of your brain that says, look, let's work this out. Let's reason this out. Let's see how we can fix it. And what you're saying is, and you said a couple of times is don't suppress it. No, this is pay dirt. This is golden. Freud said at the royal road to the unconscious. In other words, it's the golden road to understanding yourself better. If you just feel like you snapped and however it shows itself is your temperament style or your experiences or whatever, that doesn't matter. The style is not so important. But if you feel yourself getting that strong emotion, that's pay dirt. Go for it. Whatever it is you're trying to hide from yourself is obviously the very thing that we need to know about. In order to do that, as you say, you stay with it, you work with it. And then the reward is? The reward is by understanding. That's how we get empathy. And you can say to yourself, you know, the volume is written about self-care. Well, this is the essence of self-care is where you say, oh, I see, I get it. That's why I'm doing that because I was really angry, humiliated, fearful, your brain tells you rationally what's happening. And then ideally, of course, the temperature comes down because you understand there's a reason for it. It's not just some irrational thing you've chosen to pull out of your hat. 
Rather, there's a reason for it. As the temperature goes down, that's where we have an opportunity to start thinking empathically about, you know, everybody has challenges. We all have our idiosyncrasies. And really what we need in the world is more tolerance and more understanding, not only of ourselves, but of each other. And if we can understand and be empathic with ourselves, we're much more likely to be tolerant of others. At the beginning, we talked about how we're social beings and the importance in being in relationships with others, but how important is it to find people that are like-minded or how do you describe that? This is a temperament issue. Some people are much more inclined. We all have a tribal instinct. We want to know that the people that we are with are like us in some ways and how much they have to be like us depends on the individual. And that might mean how we are by nature or by temperament. If we're seeking people who are very much like us and reassure us and share our same thoughts, that's fine. Maybe we can work together more advantageously and efficiently and all the rest. Others will say, well, I do want to work with people naturally who are like me and share my interests, but I also like the challenge that comes from a different way of thinking about it because that might enrich the process. So it depends really on our temperaments, depends on our goals, and it depends on the particular nature of the people that we seek to invite in to our groups. In our tribalism, something which on its core is defined, we want to have people with whom we share things, but on the periphery tells us how much they have to be shared. On the periphery, it can be blurred. We can appreciate the differences. But also by sticking with people who are with us on just about everything, can't that also divide us because we become intolerant of the people that don't agree with us? Absolutely. So what's important is to say, if your goal is to only be with people like you, so you can amplify your intolerance, well, that's not very good. But if it's, let's say, we talked earlier about a passion for potentially plant-based food. If you're with people who share a goal of helping people to get healthy because they're eating healthy diets, and you both share that passion, that can be a reason why the overlap or the shared interests are so important. At the same time, let's say you've got one that likes spicy food and one that likes bland food. Maybe the mix is good because then you appeal to a broader segment of the population. So on the periphery, it's spicy versus bland. But at the core, you're sharing something which is good. And that is a sense of a healthy interaction. And being intolerant of others is not a healthy interaction. And so you have to look to see what goals you're sharing and why that common ground is something that raises everyone's boat. One of the things you talked about in the book, a way to understand each other better is to know people's reactor styles. Is that what you call? Trisha and I were talking about that on our bike ride. Like, what reactor are you? And I think I know what I am. But can you tell us the four types and how you came up with them? Here are the reactors. There's the nervous reactor, the revved up reactor, the molten reactor, and the retreating reactor type. I came up with them because, you know, I've been talking to people for a long time, and this is a far from comprehensive list. 
it's just a useful list that can help people to better understand and leave room for people to be different, to have different styles. And it's something that I use all the time. I have to remember that I'm kind of a frantic reactor, and then every once in a while it gets into a molten reactor. And I could say there's a dollop probably of anxious and a dollop of withdrawing, but that's just a dollop. Mostly I'm a frantic reactor. What helps me by knowing that is that when I'm with people who are responding to stress in a different way, rather than thinking, you know, darn it, you know, why don't you uh, and have a whole torrent of comments, judgmental comments on how they're dealing with a situation that I am better at acknowledging that people are different and that the ways to approach each other to achieve better understanding can be different and to leave time and space for them and to listen better. My impulse is to rush in with my finger in the air and describe all sorts of things that I think need to be different. Or if that doesn't happen, then I withdraw and get sulky. Uh, (laughs) So knowing that it isn't always helpful really helps us to, again, leave more space. And we have talked about some of the downsides, but there are also upsides in these differences. There's plenty to say about both the upsides and the downsides, but it has helped me within the family and my family and hearing me say this would say, oh, as my husband said to quote him, you know, I've been reading this book and there are some of these places where I think, uh, you know, you might be able to do, I'm not sure it's really registering with you. So I will admit (laughs) that there are plenty of times, do as I say, not as I do, but it's still helpful to remember as a baseline. Something that we'd love to hear you expand on is that idea of being a bystander. Can we talk about that? (laughs) You're hitting all my favorite topics. (laughs) And again, the reason these are all my favorite topics, naturally, it's because these are topics that I wrote about because I feel so passionately about them and they are uplifting to me. And so going from being a bystander to an upstander comes from two sources. One is, I remember as a kid hearing about the murder of Kitty Genovese, 28-year-old woman who was stabbed to death. It was reported in front of a crowd in New York City, right in front of her apartment. And no one in the crowd did anything. No one called the police in time, et cetera. And she was stabbed a second time, which is when she died a few minutes later. So it really triggered studies. Two guys named Darlene Latane did a study on why people don't act. The social psychology really of going from a bystander to an upstander requires two key issues. One is that we look at a problem, whether it's a human rights problem, a climate problem, a COVID problem, we see that it is an emergency. That has got to be made clear. We can't try to sauce it up with something sweet. We got to see it's an emergency. And then we have to propose an act, something that we can do to remedy it. So those are the two critical pieces that came out of that research. And it dovetails very nicely with the medical model, which is we tell people all the time, you know, you've got a very serious disease. We don't say, well, you might be a little invasive and aggressive and it could, you know, really hurt you. No, we 
we say, look, you know, it's cancer. And we tell them what kind of cancer it is. So we don't mince words. So there's the first statement of telling them it's an emergency, essentially, and then pivoting to here's what we can do about it. So those are the two key issues. We can use it for COVID. We can use it for climate. We can use it for any of the ills that we are talking about. Then the second issue is going from being a bystander to an upstander is that countless research shows that when you drive up a person's anxiety with that first statement of here's the problem, unvarnished, uh, not going to sugarcoat it, that when we take action to relieve that, when we take action as an antidote to that particular alarming news, that reduces our anxiety. So going from a bystander to an upstander reduces our anxiety, and it's also one of the best things that we can do generally to create a society that's health has been restored. And I'm just going to add one thing, and that is that brain scans now show us exactly what's happening is when we lead by example like that, what happens is that it triggers that sense of a herd mentality, which is a survival mechanism in us to follow a good leader. And we can also see now that it goes from one side of our brain, which is focusing on our individual needs, to what we can do as a group. And that very feeling gives us a sense of awe at being a part of something bigger. So go from being a bystander to an upstander, join a group, start a coalition, do whatever it is that you can do. These are empowering actions that help everybody. We tend to be inward focused, and if we can be a part of something bigger, that can help us. Immensely. I love what you said again earlier when you were describing the sleep cycles, and then there was that period when you would wake up and look up at the stars and the skies, and you used the word, that's where we probably found awe. It's interesting now you use the word awe again when you're part of something bigger. You're good. You're good. Awe is it's a very special emotion. And what we know is that awe is the only emotion, wonder, awe, whatever word you want to use, has a special impact on our immune system. It heightens our ability to fight off infection. It is a magic sauce like no other. Awe is like amazement and wonder. And, it is. And it sounds like it does require this idea that you're part something of something. Outside of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you can experience awe. Think throwing sandbags to stop a river from going mm -hmm. over its banks. The activities in a food bank, lining up to help people. These are experiences of awe when we are a part of something bigger. It can be a part of our political process as we work together to restore the equanimity and the civilized discourse that we know will heal us. These are all places with noble thoughts in mind. Even if we disagree that we try to understand, here's where the tolerance comes in. What's the other person's language? What's the other person's word cloud? What are the words that are meaningful to this person? Lisa, is there something else you want to talk about that we didn't talk about? I would like to thank both of you because I know that putting things like this together don't just happen. And allowing me to speak to the people who are listening and to connect, of course, with the two of you, it's very easy to connect with the two of you, but to know that there are other people there and to be able to connect with them is an extraordinarily gratifying experience. And I appreciate all the hard work, the hours and hours and hours that it takes for you to put something like this together. 
Thank you. And thank you for being so open to come in on Health Gig. I mean, it was just a cold call and you're like, yeah, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope everyone picks up your new book, Emotional Inflammation, Discover Your Triggers and Reclaim Your Equilibrium During Anxious Times. We certainly need that now more than ever. So Lisa, thank you so much. What a pleasure. You guys are great. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well.